This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Dr. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative care specialist who treats people with terminal or life-altering illnesses. Stay with me because he's extraordinary and his work is incredibly inspirational. B.J. is also the author, with Shoshana Berger, of A Beginner's Guide to the End. I think everyone should own a copy of this book. B.J.'s perspective on death and dying is profound, and it ultimately has the potential to transform the way we live. As he puts it, we all die. You're not going to fail at it. So shouldn't we at least know how to plan for it? Today, we start with talking about what that means in practical terms, and then we get deeper. How can we have a beautiful death? What makes a meaningful life? How do we grieve? And if we don't know what happens when we die, how do we make peace with the unknown? I laughed, and of course, I cried while talking to BJ, but I came away from it feeling so much gratitude and a little less overwhelmed about living and dying. So if you've been taken down to the bone by illness or vulnerability or trauma or whatever else, you are very sensitive to the splendors of the world, too. Let's get to my chat with B.J. Miller now. Have you ever spoken to a medium? No, no. Interesting. That is inter- that's fascinating to me, considering mm. your work. Yeah. Or do you feel like yeah. it would color you, like, away from the practicalities? No. No, I think there's plenty of room for all of it. I, to date, get so much pleasure out of mystery and not knowing and mm. sort of an agnostic point of view that I've, I really actually enjoy and feel very comfortable with. And I'm so consumed with getting people, sort of walking people to the 
to the cliff's edge, and 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 it's felt very respectful to not pretend to know what comes next. Yeah. But I personally, no, I don't think. It's a fascinating subject, and who the heck knows? And yeah. I would love to wade into it. For, it sort of feels like once I'm kind of done with some of this stuff, then maybe I will start pointing my attention, even just personally, to I think what's it's, next. it's. I mean, it is the biggest question, right? As far as I know. And as someone who's spent your whole life facing death alongside people. Yeah. But I also really respect the idea of not wanting to have a definitive experience. But so much of your work is... W- being able to walk people to this point of no control mm-hmm. and not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Except the end of the physical body. Yeah. Yes. And there's so much to do to do that. And and my job, as you point out, my role, my job is to not, is, and in some ways projections are something of an enemy. That's how I think we can really undermine the experience of the person who's actually doing the dying. Yeah. And so I kind of, it feels right for me to kind of leave some of these questions alone yeah. lest I accidentally start sort of projecting onto someone, oh, don't worry about your death. There's something waiting for you afterwards. I mean, comments totally. like that can be so un- incredibly unhelpful. So it, it helps me feel like I'm in the same, uh, close to the same boat with my patients to have the same questions unanswered that they do. Yeah. So... You are like fan favorite at HQ. You should know. <laughs> everyone was so <laughs> really. Yes, everyone loves you. That's I know nice you're married, but no, I'm not anymore. Oh, you're not. <laughs> no. Oh well, anyway. ladies, BJ is available. <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah, I, mean, I guess that's the word. I don't know what it is, but that's nice to hear. I suppose. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you have become one of the most visible people in the world of palliative care, which is kind of new. I mean, not super mm. new, but kind of new, right? Yes and no. Yeah. yeah. In some ways, it's the oldest kind of medicine, and as and as a modern phenomenon, it's pretty dang new. Yeah. yeah. This idea of helping people die better or mm-hmm. deal, I guess, with terminal illness or long well, illness. Actually, let's pause there because yeah. that's a really great thing to clear up for listeners. It's so, I mean, my field, the field of, the field is called hospice and palliative medicine officially. That is the name of the subspecialty in clinical medicine that I'm part of. And we confuse ourselves and other people in medicine all the time with our language and so, and I don't understand how the public could ever be expected to follow it because we're we've been so confused even internally. So, like palliative care is essentially the treatment of suffering, mm. and the context is serious illness. Period. So, if you got some serious illness and you're suffering, palliative care is for you. Period. You know, there's no mention of time to death. There's no mention of the clock at all. Mm. Hospice is a sort of a subset of palliative care. That is the treatment of suffering specific to the end of life. So palliative care, treatment of suffering, writ large, subset for hospice of the treatment of suffering at the end of life. Does that, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Totally. So the really important – one of the reasons why I get this distinction so clear is that a lot of people for a number of reasons you know, are struggling with treatments of illness, multiple chronic illnesses, and they may have years to live, but they're really struggling. And, and understandably so. It's just very hard. And so if people don't understand that palliative care, you don't have to be dying to get palliative care, they don't get it. They wait. So they suffer unnecessarily thinking that they're not eligible for this thing called palliative care. Or suffering and feeling like they are unwilling to engage with palliative care because it means that they're going to die. Exactly. Like we have such an aversion 
to death. <laughs> do you feel like that's just part of being human or do you think it's new? Mm, yes and no. So I think it's worth noting that we accidentally beat ourselves up for not being into death. You know, like there's no <laughs> number one fan. <laughs> you know, it really <laughs> that's fair. I mean it's all right. I don't we don't need to beat ourselves up over this. Because I mean just from a you know, from my rudimentary medical training, you know, we're wired hormonally to fight, flight, or freeze when mm-hmm. we are confronted with some threat to our existence. I mean, that's in our hormones. There's no that's not our frontal lobes thinking about anything. That's just our gut response. So there's something in us that is repelled by this topic for sure. And there's this learned extra piece that I think in the last hundred plus years, really since the sort of technology revolution in the Western countries, where we've pushed so hard on nature and medicine has taken such a, a belligerent stance on illness, on, on death, yeah. that now we're kind of paying the price at these, I think a hundred years ago, no one was being – maybe, I don't know. A few pro- people were probably seduced by thinking that every problem they came across was going to be curable and that death was kind of optional. I somehow doubt that anyone was really seduced into thinking that way 100 years ago. Whereas now, thanks to our quote-unquote progress, we are able to push back on nature in incredible ways. We are able to live with illnesses that would have killed us even 30 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. So it is very seductive and easy to be pulled into by our language, by the momentum of, of society, momentum of healthcare, to be pulled to a place where you actually find yourself wondering if death is actually uh, a necessity at all. Totally. And I think in that in that point of view, there is – so my dad is an intensivist mm. and my mom is a nurse by training and we talk oh, – my awesome. mom's incredibly morbid. She gets mad. But like your book is mm. made my, – my mother would read that as a beach read. Like that is her <laughs> – it is her fantasy book. Oh, I love her. And my dad – and there's a lot of discussion of death and my mom's very morbid and she's constantly updating her advanced directive and wanting to know about the will. And I'm like, you're not dying. Like, <laughs> I, I, but I appreciate it. And But my dad, he would see very sick people, both in his normal practice as a pulmonologist and then mm-hmm. also just doing rounds on the ICU, would always have this conversation with people of what do you have you talked about? Mm-hmm. What the inevitability like, have, do you know what you want? And mm-hmm. ha, do you know what he wants or she wants? And have you guys talked about this? Mm-hmm. And invariably he would sort of be met with a cold stare. Mm-hmm. He was like, it's so strange. People don't want to prepare for the one yeah. inevitability in life. And they leave sort of disasters, yeah. both in not knowing, not being able to honor people and then the practical parts of death. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before about my brother-in-law who died suddenly. And I think in the book you say 10 to 20% of deaths are sudden mm-hmm. and 80% of people can prepare. And he was young and mm-hmm. he couldn't prepare. He wasn't prepared. Mm-hmm. And that was, I would have loved, I mean, your book in advance and some of those practices I've used in my own life to get ready mm-hmm. because, yeah, calling, arguing with AT&T and unwinding bank accounts and right. magazine subscriptions. And it right. is tawdry and not what you want to be doing when you're mourning. Amen. So that is a long preamble to your book, <laughs> which is, it's so big, but yet it's mm. so, I liked that the print is large. Yeah, thank you. Good, smart choice. Yeah. <laughs> and that it is so straightforward mm. and clear-eyed about all of the questions surrounding this thing that's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. 
So uh, let's talk about the impetus for the book, which I think is probably clear. And then also, like, how how did you end up being B.J. Miller, hmm. the face of palliative care? Hmm. And why? Because a lot of people don't go into med school wanting to work on death. Like, people want to hmm. keep people alive, right? Yeah. So how – tell us your story. Hmm. Where to begin? I mean, so – I went into medicine. I, I got injured in college. Yeah. Electrical burns. Came close to death myself. That was a real eye-opener, as you can imagine. I, I'm now an amputee for listeners who don't know. And um, But it was that experience. I was 19. And it was that experience that really opened my eyes up to my own mortality. And, you know, sure, I knew I died, you know, whatever. But 19-year-olds, I wasn't really... You don't think you're going to die. Not really, right? You don't really have an internalized that message on some level. I hadn't, like, few had. So, but now I did after that, after that stint in a burn unit. And and so I was aware that was a piece of what I was absorbing was the fact that I am finite, that I am vulnerable as a fleshy human thing. But really, frankly, I was much more interested in, in a way, a palliative care subject matter. Sure, mortality is a piece of it. But the thing that I was particularly interested in was how humans suffer and how humans make meaning from their lives, mm-hmm. even and maybe particularly, especially the hard stuff. I mean, I, you start thinking about suffering. And so for me, well, for me, it was early on, it was a, it was me trying to lean into my situation. How had I changed? How was I the same? What was my relationship to my friends and others now that I was so aware of our interdependencies? Yeah. And this whole myth of independence, like no one's independent, but we talk like we could be or should be. But I was sort of newly aware of all these things and I was trying to make, I was interested in making meaning. So I went back to college. I studied, I switched my major to art history and thinking that working thinking about art, this weird thing that humans do as a way of making sense of their experiences, making something, creating from their experiences. And that was what I was trying to do. So it felt like it was an inspiration for me to study art. Like I could learn how to approach my life in this way. That I learned how perspective gets made. And that's what I was really trying to chew on. So that was great. That was very, that was a very useful education. I mean, that was liberal arts at their finest. It really it's downright therapeutic. And then graduation rolled around. I got to figure out what the heck I want to do for a living, blah, blah, blah. And medicine lit up as something where that would be an interesting because I would be working on the with the human beings and this human condition and working with people dealing with things that they'd rather not deal with, like illness and death. But And the, the other impetus there was, I think, in the old, the old view of disability was this, this, it was this thing that you know, that we should all, that you wouldn't, no one would ever want. Mm-hmm. And that it really to do well as a disabled person was to help make, to make people think that you weren't disabled, somehow to overcome it or hide it. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be the goal that you absorbed. That's what society seemed to be telling you you should do. Thanks to my mom and others in the disability rights movement, I knew better as a young man. I knew that that wasn't possible and that that was offensive and silly. Like, why would you cut yourself off from all the lessons that being different taught you? Right. So I knew, long-winded way of saying, I knew I wanted to work with these experiences that I just had of becoming a disabled, quote-unquote, disabled person. And that 
So medicine lit up as a way to do those things. But I had so I had to go back and do the pre meds after college. I it was it was a theoretical. It was mm-hmm. an idea. It, I I don't I still don't have some inborn love of medical science. It's a mm-hmm. it's a bag of tricks that you can use to be of service. So anyway, so I entered medical school. All the while thinking, well, again, I'm here to be to learn some things, to be of service, to use my own experiences, to interrelate with the world through my experiences, and so. I was open to whatever field seemed the most practical place for me to be in, you know. And it, I thought I would do rehabilitation medicine, work with other people just fresh off a of trauma. Anyway, deep in med school, I fell out of love with that arc for a number of reasons. And my sister died that year too. So it was a big sort of a shakeup of a year in all sorts of ways. And I was going to drop out of medicine. I just was not into it anymore. I was pretty disillusioned with what it – I think – I wonder if your dad and your parents feel similarly. Like the uh, reconciling the ideals that you bring to yeah. clinical work with the realities of practicing it. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's hard. It's very hard. And that, so everyone's ripe for a disillusionment moment if they go into clinical work. And the trick is to get onto the far side of that disillusionment. Anyway, I was going to drop out of medicine. My deans talked me into sticking around for one more year doing a postdoc year, doing my internship as a better place to stop. And so I did that. I went home. My parents were in Milwaukee. And again, Lisa had just died. So it was just the three of us now. So I went home to Milwaukee, mm-hmm. lived with mom and dad, sort of rekindled our, our nuclear family, and then did my internship. And then during the internship at the Medical College of Wisconsin that happened to have one of the early palliative care programs, I happened to do an elective in palliative care and found head over heels with the field like instantaneously. What is it about it? It is all the things that I was interested in. Like, you know, I was interested in things, problems that you couldn't fix. Like how do humans adapt with things that they can't change? Yeah. You know, medical science and coming up with new cures and things and fixes for this, that. Beautiful, wonderful. Amen. All for it. But that's not really what gets my juices going. I'm more interested in the things that we can't control. That's to me where the grist is. So I knew I wanted to work with people uh, that who couldn't be cured, who weren't fixable. Mm. And I was interested in undermining that whole language barrier around disability, around unfixable, around being broken, these very normal states that we pathologize. So I was very interested in this sort of philosophical, psychological stuff and how do we adapt and what do we learn? How do we grow from these experiences? So that was a perfect setup for palliative care. Palliative care inherently, as I mentioned earlier, is is the treatment of suffering. And and inherently, if you're getting palliative care treatments, palliative care treatments are not designed to fix you. They're right. designed to help you feel as good as possible. Yeah. And so this whole there's a whole body of science, a whole interdisciplinary science around helping people suffer less, around helping people make meaning from their experiences. Yeah. So it was just a very, very easy fit. And so that that sort of it lined up that way. Here was a place, it was a field where I could bring my wounds and be welcomed. I didn't have to hide. I didn't have to pretend to be some all-knowing, omniscient doctor person. I could actually lead with all the things I didn't know. Yeah. And that felt great. And it was also just mechanically a field. It's not like surgery. So it's something I could do one-handed. That felt right. And then finally, I think an awareness that society, our American society, that we are aging and that we are increasingly living with a, certain burdens of disability and illnesses that we can't cure. And I was aware of that. I was aware of this growing need. So it also felt good to join the ranks of a field that was relatively new, that, that we knew the world need, needed more of. Yeah. 
even just, you know, and, and this is laced throughout the book, this idea of being able to just be with people. Yeah. And yeah. not offer solution. I mean, it's very human, right? Like, yeah. tell me your problems and I will fix them. Yeah. And yeah, you might be able to alleviate someone's constipation or mm-hmm. nausea, but you're ultimately saying I'm I'm comfortable sitting in discomfort. Exactly. That is sort of you, boy, you just really put your finger on it. That is like probably the number one skill in some ways. And it's really, really hard to do. Yeah. It is really, really hard to sit with someone suffering that you can't change. Yeah. They may even yell at you. And, and, the, and the trick is to not abandon them, not run away. How much do you find – I would imagine that it, your work is very rewarding mm-hmm. and, and fulfilling. Is it joyful? can be. Absolutely it can be. I mean, I don't know about in your own life, but for me, some of the m- most profound lessons mm-hmm. have come from really painful things. And also some of the funniest moments. I mean, just like <laughs> there's just an absurdity to your human body and, and its foibles. And we dress up nicely and we walk around with everything just so and we look like we've got it all down. But most of us or all of us, you know, <laughs> our bodies do weird things. And it's and it can be, you know, once you're kind of in that zone with people and the barriers are down and everyone's tenderized and the vulnerability doesn't feel like such a liability. Mm-hmm. The humor starts flowing too, and then there's just the magic, or the, the the just the reality of us being sort of relativistic creatures. Like if you, as a foil for joy or for beauty, I mean, you really want to get to know beauty, go hang out in a burn unit for a while, and then walk outside. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were met with fresh air or sunlight on your skin, or I mean, just the profound beauty of the material world that we take, most of us take for granted most of the time. Yeah. So if you've been taken down to the bone by illness or vulnerability or trauma or whatever else, you are very sensitive to the splendors of the world, too. Yeah. Like I, re- I, re- I think it was in an article that was written about you, and then you mentioned it in the book. But when I don't know if he was with you when mm. you climbed onto the electrified train car or mm-hmm. just another friend who brought you a snowball. Pete, yeah. Pete, yeah. Mm-hmm. when you were in the burn unit and let yeah. it melt in your hand. Yeah, it was a magical, simple, magical moment. Basic, simple stuff, like all the mm-hmm. fundamental. Like that whole experience of being sick, it just takes you down to the nub. Like you get back down and get reacquainted with life in its sort of rudiments, in its mm-hmm. elements. Like you get reacquainted with gravity. I remember the first time sitting up in bed after lying down for a couple months, just being reacquainted with gravity or the weight of your of your body in, in space. I mean, basic, basic stuff, the senses. That was the favor. It took, it, it sort of dismantled me down to a place and then I had a, lo- a lot of loving support around to kind of rebuild. Yeah. And you get to kind of really rebuild from, in a lot of ways, from start. You, you have an excuse to kind of refashion. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, 
you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In yourself. We'll come back to BJ Miller in a second. There's a workout, then there's a goop workout, and then there's goop league. Goop League is our first major fitness-focused experience. We're launching this new event the weekend of October 12th to 13th in a city that we love and that's become something of a second home to us. That's Austin, Texas, guys. And we'll be at our favorite, the Line Hotel in downtown Austin, right on the river. What in the world can you expect from the Goop team this time? Goop League is all about tapping into the incredible potential of the body. We're bringing together some of the most talented and cutting edge instructors and experts from the world of fitness. These are the people who are redefining physical wellness and shaping the way we think about and approach the mind-body-soul connection. As a guest at Goop League, you'll get to take three classes with these top practitioners in several different studio spaces. Ground, lift, pulse, burn, and release. And some of my very favorite teachers will be there like Anna Ray, a former dancer from LA who has developed a wholly unique, compelling, and fun movement method that revolves around reconditioning your fascia. It's extraordinary, I promise. And Colette Dong from the Ness in New York City will also be there. The executive team at Goop recently did the Ness's new bounce and sculpting classes together when we were out on the East Coast. It was hard, not gonna lie, but it was kind of hilarious and very cool. And of course, you'll get to see and do a lot more if you come to Goop League. There will be our pop-up shop, food, drinks, and a bunch of power stations where we'll have tools for soothing sore muscles, relaxing, and just finding a little zen. So to join the Goop League, you can get a pass for the event on Saturday, October 12th or Sunday, October 13th. Just head to goop.com slash goop league. Just head to goop.com slash goop hyphen league. Back to my chat with B.J. Miller. So let's talk about your book, which I think, even if it's not required reading, I think everyone needs to own it. Mm. I also think that there are parts of it that should be required reading. If you Mm. have children, are you prepared? Do you have life insurance? You don't go into as much Mm -hmm. of sort of that, like preparations for the living Mm. and the the suddenness, but sharing your passwords, putting people's names on your account, getting rid of stuff which my mother is very much in favor of. <laughs> but it, what parts for you, like what are the most essential? I mean, it, it's also, I think for anyone who has to navigate the hospital, essential, mm-hmm. yeah. sort of in delineating the roles of different people and how to advocate for yourself, Yeah. what your burial options are, all these things that I think it's like, where do you go, right? We go mm-hmm. to Google and you find some, it's, I can tell you, because I've done this now mm-hmm. from experience, that it's at the SEO wins our funeral homes. Yeah. There's no good source of information. So right. where, where, how do you want people to use the book? Well, that was, so you put your, so that was the impetus to write this book. Shoshana and I knew that she had just come off the death of her father and had had that exact experience. Like, Oh shit! Now, now what do I do? Oh, mm-hmm. I guess we Google what to do when somebody dies. Basically, I mean yes. that's essentially what they. I mean, there. 
because the subject is in the closet, it's just underdeveloped for most of us. We don't even we haven't thought about it, so therefore we don't even we don't know where to turn when it's when it's time. So the impetus of the book was to gather this sort of cover the waterfront, all these issues, medical issues, non-medical issues, and try to get some treatment of those of the subject in one place. Mm-hmm. For for people who didn't have any other agenda. You know, we don't, we're not, there's not a, commer- I guess there's the sale of the book, but we're not commercially invested per se in choices people make. Right. We are really mean this as a, as a, as we just wish, we're trying to write the, the book that we wished was already in the world. Yeah. And that we would find useful. So anyway, so that, that is, the impetus of the book was to help exactly the ways you're pointing and to make an experience, you know, I think it's really useful to, dis- to discern between necessary suffering, just the aches and pains of life, I don't think any of us could – I'm sure none of us could get through life. If you're on the planet for more than a few minutes, you suffer. I mean it's just – there's just a mm-hmm. truth to that. But what we're trying to get at is we also have this extra layer of the man-made mm-hmm. avoidable sufferings that are just from inattention or you know mixed agendas or whatever else, commercial interests. We just make all sorts of things harder than they need to be. And dying is one of those things that's become way harder than it needs to be. So this book was meant to make it a little bit easier and perhaps a little bit more meaningful. Yeah. But th- what was your question? <laughs> I mean that was my question. And I think for people who are certainly hoping that they're not facing death, mm-hmm. I can say having gone through it, and and maybe it's embarrassing to admit that I was completely unprepared, even though I have two small children. Mm. But there is something, there was something deeply, and I wrote something about it on Goop that was essentially sort of my checklist Mm -hmm. for what I went through to get ready. Mm -hmm. And it's not morbid, but like, you know, family trust, life insurance, Mm -hmm. compilation of passwords, as mentioned, beneficiaries on accounts, existence of accounts. Yeah. Just sort of a quick shared Google Doc yep. with people in my family, and I, and then it's done. And now I'm like, oh, if something were to happen to me, my kids are okay, mm. and I, and you don't need to dwell on it. But I do think that there were a lot of parts in the book beyond the t- the tactical block and tackle mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. that you outlined that are sort of the emotional meaning making. Yeah, and I think that's Tried to. yeah, that's the stuff to really get ahead of too. I agree. Well, you're okay. So right. So yeah, there's a practical piece. There's this paperwork stuff, and another yeah. reason why do we write this book? On some level, okay, dying's natural. We all do. We've always done it. You know. So therefore, I don't have to really plan. It's just going to happen, right? Well, no, because we've intervened, and again, we've intervened in so many ways that you're going to be, you're most likely to be diagnosed with the thing that's going to end your life years in advance, and you're going to have this weird protracted relationship with, in some ways, a very slow death. Mm. And we have in, we've through our efforts, we and especially in healthcare, have layered in all this unintuitive structural stuff that you have to go through. So that is why this book needs to exist. I mean, on the one hand, there should be a lot of reassurance. We all we all will die. You're not going to fail at it. You can't fail at it. You know, you're going to get you're through gonna it. You're going to win. You yeah. are going to win. You're going to get through it. I, honestly, I take comfort in it. And so, therefore, don't oh, don't. Don't, you don't need to worry so much. It, you'll be – we'll get through it. So on the one hand, we're trying to reassure people. But on the, on the other hand, we're starting to say like, eh, yeah, but if you think this is an intuitive – if this is an intuitive process, the news is for you that, that it ain't, especially waiting through health care and insurance and payment, et cetera. So 
uh, long preamble to say that there's a big chunk of the book that is very just practical, like you've, like you've so kindly outlined. And we have this chapter about a, a when I die file, the things mm-hmm. that you should put in one place that your heirs can find it, passwords, your advanced directive, will, all that stuff. It's about 20 items. And on that list, too, you get to also stay like, hey, what music do you want at your funeral? Or who do you want at your funeral? Or whatever else. You can put in care and handling instructions of any stripe. There's a thing called an ethical will, which is a way to pass on lessons to your friends or family, things that you've learned, things that you want them to know about yourself. So there's all these little tidbits yeah. that you can lean into. And within the ethical will, like a, a way to elaborate a little bit on your intent. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So that gets back. So, the, yes, practical stuff. But then – and in that way, the book is going to help you make it less hard, mm-hmm. you know, less chaotic, less difficult. And what you're also pointing to is there's a there's another layer to this, this sort of a secret, which is like, okay, once you by force or by choice look at the subject of your own mortality, it can be a very rewarding engagement. Mm-hmm. That's where it's the fact that your time is limited that that lends preciousness to your time, that lends importance and urgency to the choices you make. Mm-hmm. And le- so that it becomes a source of how we humans make meaning. So what you also point to so kindly is that, that there's stuff in this book to help you kind of move beyond fear and have some sort of relationship with your life as a mortal being so that – you, the sooner you do that, the sooner you can start living your life with all sorts of purpose and intention. And if you do that, by the time death comes around, you won't be so laden with regrets. Yeah. And you're much more likely to have assembled a meaningful life for yourself. Yeah. And to have said the things. You know, there were a few parts that – there were many things actually that made me cry. But in it, your coworker or co-writer Shoshana mm-hmm. writes a letter to her daughter. Mm-hmm. Cleo. Which yeah. is – Shoshana hopefully and clearly has many, many years to live, but mm-hmm. it still stands. Like when if she dies and her daughter gets that when mm-hmm. she's 90, mm-hmm. it still stands. And I wish we had more rituals as cultures uh, yeah. to do that for our children, to write those things and yeah. put them away and tell each other how we feel about, about each other while yes. we have the time. Yes. That you're so right. I mean, like for me, my personal goal in all this – like, I want to appreciate the life I have while I have it. I catch myself appreciating things, objects, people, whatever it is. I appreciate them really when I'm about to lose them or I've lost them. Like, that's yeah. when I go, oh, I really loved that thing. My goal with all this is try to drive that for myself and others deep earlier in life so that we're not going – we're not hedging our bets so much and not deferring those very important moments with people we care and love for, you know, love, et cetera, care for and love. So right on. That is the idea. Get in touch with the fact that your life is finite so that you can really soak it up. Mm-hmm. And you brought up the idea of the ethical will. This is a, this is a, it's a 30 year, it's like a 3,000, 3,500-year-old tradition. It goes back to the Old Testament of, 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 of a way to pass on your worldview, your personality, lessons learned, the things you've intended for yourself or for others. You can put that in an ethical will. There's a sort of a technology to transmit that mm. to people you love and people who come after you. And also this idea of telling stories mm-hmm. and this idea that we don't think that anyone is interested and like who would find it who would find my life interesting mm. but my dad had recorded my grandmother and we found it not that long ago mm-hmm. and she was talking about her childhood fleeing Poland 
before World War II as a Jew and going to South Africa. And it was there was nothing like particularly profound, but yeah. to hear her voice and to hear Magic. her story. Yeah. And my dad, of course, like I think we also believe that we have more immortal memory, mm-hmm. right? And but to be able to actually code these things. And I think now with social media, we sort of feel like, oh, there's some sort of default, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but I don't know that I'm recording the meanings that matter on social. No. <laughs> my guess is maybe, I don't know for sure, but let's just say it's a, probably a safe bet that there's this whole this analogy of sort of signal to noise. There's a ton of noise out there and maybe someone can kind of root around and find the signal that is you and put it together from your yeah. social media posts. But much better to do that with some intention and you know, that's yeah. a, a perfect thing for a when I die file. And it's so interesting you bring that up. Like all of us have stories. All of us leave legacies. We may not get to some uh, state of accomplishment where we're donating buildings with our names on it. Overrated. Overrated. Those buildings <laughs> will fall one day too anyway. But there is something really magical about the process of a life. And if I could hear my sister's voice again, mm. if she had left a recording for me or a letter, I mean – I would just roll around with that thing all the time. It would have just – I'm not upset with her for not doing that. But would it have made my life – would it have added beauty and joy to my life to have received such a thing from her? Oh, my God, yes. Mm. So and this is another one of the sort of themes in the book is like for yourself, doing these things might feel really good. I wonder if it did for you. You know, with you have two kids. Did it feel good in a way to mm-hmm. kind of begin – planning for this? Well, in some ways, you're trying to control the uncontrollable. But we have a little bit of control. We do. I don't think there's any – no need to abdicate what control we have. Yeah. It's just to go and get clear where we don't have control and have some relationship with that too. No, absolutely. And I – but your your book also was a nudge for me to do a little bit more Mm. and to create some sort of practice, Mm. even if it's on their birthdays, of putting something away so that – God forbid. I mean, that's the thing. You don't think it's going to happen to you. Right. At least not now. Not now. Of course not. it can. No, it absolutely can. And I think we also live Mm. our lives in that weird sort of not fatalistic but always fearing tragedy. And you see it so much. It's in our faces all the time, like how short these precious lives are. Yes. Well, can I cut you off there? Because I think this is another modern phenomenon that we're kind of living in the midst of. That has its own problems. I mean, I think in some way we become inured to it. Another mm-hmm. shooting, another blah, 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 another. Tra- I mean, you know, we're now hyper aware of tragedies happening all over the place to the point that it's such a pile of tragedy that you ca- you have to get practice at ignoring it on some level just to get through your day. Yeah. So what is strangely, perversely, all this awareness is probably driving – what's the right word? It's all this uh, – being able to be aware of so much – action in the world is probably driving us to get numb yeah. and shut down because you just how, – how can you handle all that, that, that load of suffering, yours and others? And this is a, there's a modern problem in, in healthcare of burnout. There's a thing called compassion fatigue, which yeah. I find is absolutely is, – is a real phenomenon. It's hard to care this much. It's hard to care at scale. You know, in a way, and these are these are we don't have we don't have long genetic code written over uh, millennia as a species to handle this. This is the world's changing at a clip that far outstrips our biology and our ethos as well, too. So, in in all these ways, death's getting harder, and all these ways, life's getting harder. 
And it's also true, it's getting more layered and nuanced and textured and amazing. And we have so much raw material to work with as human beings too. So I'd sure like us to find a way to, to delight in the wonder of our time mm-hmm. rather than wish for some other time that we can't have again. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen some hard things and some beautiful things in, in watching people pass. So what in your mind, like what does a beautiful death look like? Hmm. So I've come around like a lot of people in, in this field to the basic stance that there, that there is – Objectively speaking, I'm very suspicious that there's such a thing as a good death, objectively. I mean, there are themes. We do know from experience and from data that what's important, we know what's important to most people around the time of their death, being in touch with loved ones and people they care about. Oftentimes that means being at home or at least in a familiar setting, being comfortable, being at peace with their God. You know, we know that these sort of thematically are important to people. To be to have minimal regrets, but beyond that, a beautiful death. I mean, I've come to see that as entirely self-referential. Mm-hmm. So, a beautiful death to me is one that's consonant with the person who was dying. Mm-hmm. That that in some way, how they were as a living human being lines up with how they were as a dying human being. That there's some through line, some consistency, and that doesn't mean it's pretty, but that's beautiful to me. And that's a pretty dang good goal. Lest I tell you, hey, Elise, here's what I th- here's 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 a good death and you should go do this. No, no, no. <laughs> that you need to answer that question for yourself. You need to understand what would be a beautiful thing for yourself. But I as someone who cares about you, I would see beauty in your death if it was consonant with you. Mhm. Yeah. A lot of your work sort of in palliative care is also for the family, right? The people who are mm-hmm. shepherding alongside you. What and I think there are a lot of really helpful points about grief and being mm-hmm. with people in grief. One that like you don't really understand it unless you've experienced it. Mm-hmm. But two, even the very practical, I found this very helpful when Peter died. How are you today? Mm-hmm. Or how are you this morning? Mm-hmm. It's a much better question for yeah. someone who's in grief than how are you? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. But what are the other things that you think are important? For people, you've obviously been in grief, for people to understand. And maybe it is bringing death out of the closet so Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make everyone so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think that's a piece of it. Yeah. For me, I tell you what, and for me and patients I work with, it keeps coming up that it's actually helpful to remind myself, to be reminded of the nature of grief. So just sort of get underneath it for a second. I mean, I think I have found it hugely helpful to realize the relationship between grief and love. Mm. Like if you don't love someone, you won't grieve that they're gone. You know, I mean, it's like that they're absolutely linked. You grieve because you love. Yeah. And just, and it's a little bit to me, reminds me of, I also find sort of conceptual therapeutic value in remembering that that death is part of life, not its opposite. It's yeah. not at odds. We keep treating it as though that there, that death is 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 antagonistic to life, mm-hmm. when in fact it's completely essential to life, and it always has been. And so that it's so seeing dying as part of of life, seeing uh, grief as part of love, as a package deal, helps sort of destigmatize it, deshame it, and remind yourself why you're feeling so weird. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I find that sort of setup really, really helpful because then in some ways for a family member, I've watched it in clinic, their eyes light up and say, oh, yeah, 
now it's almost an honor. Like they, they're in touch with their pain, their sorrow is honoring this person that they've lost. Mm. And that's – then all of a sudden there's even a little bit of pride in your grief. Yeah. So that I feel is really key. But outside of that, I think one of the things you got to realize about grief is it will have its, – it's like a force. It's like a force of nature. You can, you can control it to a point, but it will have its way with you. It will move through you yeah. whatever you do. And this is why it can pop out. Their grief has a gazillion proxies. So it might appear as bitterness or anger or giddiness. I tell a story in the, in the book about my sister's funeral. I started laughing weirdly. Like it was very – odd and a little bit frightening to myself at the time. But the point is grief will find a way through you and out of you and it may present in all sorts of ways. So I think that's very helpful for people to understand is like you really you, – you, you ride grief. You surf it. You don't mm-hmm. commandeer it. And I've tried to commandeer it. I tried to commandeer it with my sister's death and it really – what it, it didn't – I, it just shut me down. It, it shut me down and it, it, it got in the way of my relationship with my sister. So what I've come to understand about grief is it is this process. You go through it. It will end. There is a beginning and an end to grief. It doesn't mean the memory of the person fades, but the grief does fade. And so what's happening in that process? I think what's happening in that process, what feels right to me, is that you are – Letting – setting – like you're, it's a transition between a relationship with someone that you've loved. Now it's – you no longer have that relationship. But there's something – there's something transformational happening and you get to set up a different relationship. So I do think if, if, if done well, quote unquote, if you, if, you, if you embrace your grief, you will come to know in your bones that you've lost this person you care about. And you will also come to know in your bones that they're, st- that they're in you, that mm-hmm. you still get to have a relationship with this person. Just because they're not in front of you anymore doesn't mean that they're gone from your life. And if you try to shortchange that grief, you shortchange that relationship you would get to have indefinitely. Totally. I love that. Like as you can – you can't – people listening can't see it, but that made me cry. Um, mm-hmm. It's also not – it, it fades, but you don't get over it. Like this whole like get over it. <clears throat> That's obviously a total fallacy. Totally. And very frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And not possible, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's just like what a setup. So anyway. No, it's true. But yeah. I think it's exactly what you said. Your relationship with this person continues despite yeah. their absence. Yeah. And I, I – that's very validating. Thank you. Thank you. Do you – and we were talking about this a bit at the beginning, but is watching people die mystical? I think I'm sure. Yes, absolutely it is. I mean, in a way, we're trying to – the book is trying to demystify death so that each of us can <laughs> remystify it. I saw yeah. someone – I can't remember where I saw that word used. I don't know if it's actually a word, but I loved it because it is there's, – there's only so much that our – our intellect is only going to get us so far. There's only so much that I think we know about death. You may have your ideas. You may have your faith. You may have a deep uh, knowing in your bones. But I've not seen any proof. I don't know what death is. I know what dying looks like. So we're – so I, I'm – even if this is my job, I, you know, I'm always I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm walking with folks up to a point. But I don't ever go – I can't go – I haven't gone past that point. I haven't gone into my own death. Truly, I haven't died. And so inherently there's this 
if you're going to be with someone informally or informally, you, you, you have to have some relationship to mystery. Otherwise, you're going to start making stuff up and you're going to start talking in platitudes to patients and to loved ones. You need to really have some comfort not knowing. You have to have some comfort with mystery, maybe even interest. So back to your question, yes, I think it is an incredibly mysterious and mystical thing. You can watch some as the body's falling apart. The physiology isn't, medications aren't working like they should. The whole body's kind of coming apart. And, and you see the, this contrived th- thing that a human body is, and you watch it kind of dissolve into the cosmos again. You can see it sort of before your eyes. And the body s- ceases to be this tool for that person. And yeah, and yet, I mean, sometimes I think about this too. Like we, you know, we human beings, back to perspective making, right? We are all one. We all live on earth together. We're all one. You could make that argument. You could, you could say, I know that all, all living creatures are, are, there's a oneness to us. And if you went out in space and you looked down on our earth, you could kind of prove it. There's a one object that contains all of this. Or you could sort of scan out, pan out, and see our Earth among a gazillion, star, a gazillion planets and see ourselves as one of gazillions, one of many. Or you could zoom in, look at an electron microscope, and look at the human body. And, and mm-hmm. like myself, you, yourself, all of us are a universe of virus, little bacteria, bugs. We are a world unto ourselves. And anyway, I kind of love that. Though all those points of view are true. It just sort of depends as a human being where you place your lens. And so as you hang in with you're with someone who's actually who's everything's coming to account, the body is shutting down as you know it. You're aware too that the body it's still a material object in the world. There's still little critters living on it. You put it in the earth, it's gonna that energy is gonna transfer. It's gonna become blades of grass, etc. That's not a belief. That's something you can prove, and you can feel that at the bedside at the end of life. And I, I, so I do feel. Gosh, that's a long-winded, circuitous response, but absolutely, there's something very mystical and mysterious about death and dying. And part of the great joy in all this is is yielding to all sorts of things you just don't get to know. I know. I so want to know that. <laughs> well, you will someday, maybe. I know I will. It's just such a huge – it is the question because I think it frames our purpose here. But I mm-hmm. guess the point also needs to be regardless of what happens, does your life have meaning? And do the people who you love and care about know that mm-hmm. you love and care about them? So can I ask you a question on that front? Yeah. Do you think – do you think meaning exists and we humans need to kind of go find it? Or do you think we humans just invent meaning? I mean, that's kind of the question, right? This for me. Yeah, I think it's the are we are we having a physical are we physical beings having a physical experience only? Are we spiritual beings having a physical experience mm-hmm. and does that transcend death? I choose to believe the latter. Mhm both in experiences that I've had in life, but also because it provides sort of a bigger context for my life, Mm -hmm. which, like, it gives me sort of the closet in Mm -hmm. which to hang my clothes, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense, Mm -hmm. of what am I here for? What's my purpose? Like, how, what am I learning? Mm -hmm. How am I evolving and changing? What, what are my children doing? That feels more meaningful and maybe it's fake, but mm-hmm. then I'm like, but fine. Like, let it be 
Yeah. Let it's it be. Contrived. Yeah. Let it be. Con- if it's contrived, is is there yeah. any harm in it, or right. does it has it just created more structure for me to try to do my best? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess I won't know till I die, and then I I probably won't know, right? Yeah. But I want to believe that we're all still connected, and I that what I perceive as signs or feel are signs mm-hmm. are real because mm-hmm. it has meaning for me. Yep. And I don't think it's diluted me out of grief or made me like a Pollyanna mm-hmm. or not feel pain or not recoil when I see so much tragedy and suffering. But if anything, I think it gives me courage to step into it. Mm. Like that is the that is the stuff of life. Amen. It sounds like it's very much serving you too. I think so. Yeah. You can ask my dad. My dad thinks sometimes mm. I'm loony bins, but <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's very in, practical. Yeah, he's an intensivist. Yeah, dead body in the in the ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even if – yeah, I'm with you. I, and I don't necessarily need to know the answer of whether meaning truly objectively exists or we make it up. It is a supremely useful and compelling force and a, can be a benevolent one. I mean if you use it yeah. so. Otherwise, what are we here for? And, I, and I, I've and i also come – personally, I also, I also make a lot of space for meaninglessness. Yeah. Like I also jo- – like there's something about things just existing for their own sake, even if yeah. they're not on behalf of something else that's absolutely magical too. And profound to me. So like I, I've come I, – I do feel like meaning may be the most compelling force we humans dabble in. Yeah. Ever, whatever, if it's the most or whatever, it's, it's, a, big, it's a big force. And, and the search for meaning or the construction of meaning can pull a human being through some of the gnarliest situations that anyone would ever imagine. I mean yeah. it, we are incredibly resilient critters as well as incredibly vulnerable ones too. And I think our penchant for making meaning makes the difference. And let's just say, I mean, we, you know, you, you mean well. Let's just say we get to the end and we, we're, we get in on the big secret and it looks nothing like we imagined and all our things that we thought were meaningful aren't so meaningful. Who knows? Yeah. I don't think that would be who cares. And at that it point – It is if, who cares, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who cares if it's kind of willed you to get out of the bed and try yeah. and to construct a life with, that is in, compelling to you and I, in some ways – I, I don't know how you feel about it. I'd love your thoughts on this. I mean, in some ways, I think the kindest service a person can do the world is to find happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, you know, if you can be a light, if you can find happiness for yourself, even moments of it, you know, you shine in a certain way. And it's a very kind thing to be in the world, a happy person in a way. It is. And I, I kind of I love that thought. No, I completely agree. I think kindness, perp- like purpose, I think when people sort of find that space of feeling connected to something, mm-hmm. then they can be generous. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel seen. Yeah. You feel like you're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. even if others might not yep. be- agree with you. Yeah. And, and then I think it also in some ways takes away the fear of death because mm-hmm. – if you're living in alignment, even if it's only for mm-hmm. a few days out of your whole life, mm-hmm. I feel like it has that sort of like magic eraser capacity. I, I agree. Because I think in part, I think it's almost like almost like a math problem. If you are in alignment with this sort of forces greater than yourself, yet part of these things that are greater than yourself, well, A, you feel part of something, which is I think a really a basic human need. 
But by definition, there's something larger than you. There's something that goes on even after you die. And on some level, that may be when you're so early on in this process, that may be an affront. That may be a little <laughs> offensive. I mean, yeah, not true. There are moments where you're like, "What? The world's going to go on without me? Like, how the hell is that possible?" It almost yeah. feels offensive. <laughs> no, it's true. But once you get over yourself, there's really good news in this. That there are things that, you know, we're a little fleck of sand. There's the, it's not up to us to make everything right and do everything. And like this is just one little. The pressure's off. You're gonna yeah. die either way, and you're gonna still be part of this thing that's larger than you, even when you die. Now, to me, I find that extremely comforting. It both depressurizes me to do amazing things with my life but also gives me the sort of impetus to even try to do something with my life. And it finally gives me the impetus to forgive myself because I'm just a little teeny fleck of sand. Thanks for listening to my conversation with BJ Miller. Make sure to pick up a copy of A Beginner's Guide to the End, and you can read our Q&A with BJ at goop.com slash the podcast. Now over to GP for today's AMA. Austin asks, what are your vices? Gosh, I don't really have that many vices anymore. It's so sad. I don't even have like my once a year, like Christmas party cigarette anymore. I would say my vices are really, you know, I guess my like Japanese whiskey and my martinis and stuff like that. I know also a vice. I like to lie in the sun. That's a major vice, but I'm never giving it up, Austin. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. And you can always find more on goop.com slash the podcast. And don't miss our next episode on Tuesday. GP is talking to someone truly special.